0: Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the second Sunday in Lent. That's March 5th, 2023. And this time we'll be looking at the famous visit of Nicodemus to Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. This is one of several extended discourses by Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. And it is, in fact, uh, the only time when Jesus has an extended discourse where uh, he's not met with hostility by the authorities. Now, Nicodemus is, in fact, an authority figure. He's a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council that oversees the daily life of the Jews, certainly in Jerusalem and throughout, uh, throughout Judea and Galilee both. But while he is an authority figure, he does not react in a hostile manner to Jesus. In fact, we find when Jesus is crucified that Nicodemus is one of those who collects the body and makes sure that he receives a proper burial. That still lies in the future. For now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee with questions. And so he comes to visit Jesus by night. One other note here in that, this is John chapter 3, which is pretty soon after John chapter 1. So we're back to kind of this context question again. What has happened leading up to this moment in the Bible? And something to keep in mind, since Jesus will be talking about baptism, is that Jesus has recently been baptized. This is early on in his ministry, and while the Gospel of John does not explicitly record the baptism of Jesus, we have John the Baptist testifying about it in John chapter one, verses twenty nine and following, how he, uh, he he saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus etc. In chapter 2, you have the wedding at Cana, another miracle involving water. And now in chapter 3, we have this famous conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus about being born again. So beginning with verse 1, we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right, so this sets the stage by telling us a little bit about Nicodemus. He's, he's a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee. As we said before, he's a member of the Sanhedrin which is uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, representatives of, of both groups. He, uh, he comes to Jesus by night, and since the Gospel of John plays so much with light and darkness, meaning, you know, life and death, belief and unbelief, it seems likely that, uh, that the fact that he comes to Jesus by night is, has some symbolism to it, that uh, Nicodemus is coming out of the darkness and into the light by visiting Jesus. When Nicodemus first addressed Jesus, he's very respectful. He calls him rabbi. There is no reason to believe he's anything less than sincere in the words of honor that he speaks. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from, come from God, And the we there doesn't mean all the Pharisees, because a lot of the Pharisees already don't like Jesus, but but Nicodemus is most probably speaking of a subset. We, those of us who are in agreement with me, believe that you are in fact a teacher come from God. And then he speaks of the signs that Jesus does and says that God is with Jesus. With the terminology Nicodemus is using, he's indicating that he believes that Jesus is some sort of a prophet of God. He hasn't asked a question yet, but we read, Jesus answered him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, one of the features of the Gospel of John is that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John plays around a lot with words. He makes use of of, of Greek words that have more than one meaning to them, and and both can be true at the same time. So when Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again— The word again there can also mean from above. So either Jesus says that one is born again or one is born from above. Now, actually, we should investigate this a little bit further because the word here for born most properly means begotten. So women birth children or women bear children. Men beget children. The word can refer to a mother giving birth, not as common as referring to a father begetting a child. Um, At any rate, the ESV translates this, born again. And that is true. We must be born again. We must have new life from God by the grace that he gives us for Jesus' sake. But in the Gospels, when When John makes use of the word um, again, in Greek as anothen, um, he usually uses that word to mean from above. So most likely, the better translation here is, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born from above, to be begotten from above, is to be made new, From God, by God. And and it's somewhat in this lesson already, but it becomes more and more apparent through John, that to be begotten or born from above is to participate in the death of Jesus, to make his death your own so that he has paid the price for your sins, and so that you are forgiven for them. And of course, Keep in mind that we are joined to Jesus' death in holy baptism. Now, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is begotten from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, John doesn't use the phrase kingdom of God much. It only appears here and in in verse 5, a couple verses from now. Although, The idea of Jesus as king pervades the gospel. He speaks a few times of, quote, my kingdom, end quote. And in John, especially, during his suffering, he's portrayed as the suffering king. Um, He's clothed in a robe of purple, a royal robe, by the soldiers who, who mock him as king, hail king of the Jews. He, uh... He has a scepter made of a reed that they put in his hand and they beat him with it. Um, He wears a crown of thorns. Um, So so the idea of Jesus as the suffering king is an apparent theme um, throughout the Gospels and especially in in the Gospel of John. To, uh, To see the kingdom of God then is to receive the gifts that the king brings by believing in him. If you're not born from above, you can't believe in him. And if you can't believe in him, or if you don't believe in him, that you will not see that he is the king as he suffers and dies. Now, Nicodemus hears this and misunderstands born from above or begotten from above as meaning born again or begotten again. And so Nicodemus says, how can a man, verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time to his mother's womb and be born? Now, sometimes Nicodemus is, is portrayed as a simpleton or a moron who actually thinks that this is what Jesus means. Um, This is Nicodemus kind of um, politely asking, what do you mean by saying, I know it can't be this, so what do you really mean? So Jesus answers in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, To enter the kingdom of God, one must be born of water and the Spirit. Um, By the way, um, Pentecostals will tell you that that means there are two baptisms. First, you are born of water, and then later on, you are born of the Spirit, or else first you are born of the Spirit, and at another time, born of water. And um, the grammar of this verse doesn't allow for that. To be born of water and the Spirit is one act, not two separate baptisms. So Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about baptism. But what baptism is he speaking of? Because remember, while we will use this text to speak of Christian baptism, the baptism that you and I receive, that hasn't been instituted yet. So, where has a baptism taken place with water and the Spirit? That's Jesus' own baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. All right. So, Jesus can see and enter the kingdom of God, one, because he's the king, and two, he says, because he is born from above by water and the Spirit. First, he's speaking of himself. Now, with these words, Jesus also foreshadows our baptism, because how do we receive faith? How do we enter into the kingdom of God? Through baptism where we are baptized by water and the Spirit. But what does baptism by water and the Spirit do for us? Romans 6 says it joins us to Christ. It joins us to his death and his resurrection. So in our holy baptism, by water and the Spirit, we are joined to Christ, who was baptized by water and the Spirit in the Jordan River. So, while Jesus here in John 3 is almost certainly speaking of his own baptism in the Jordan River, nevertheless, what he says there foreshadows our baptism too, and how we are born from above, that we might have eternal life. So, as it turns out, um, John 3 is kind of like John 6 what I mean by that is, is soon in John six, just three chapters from now, Jesus will declare that He is the bread of life, and that whoever eats His flesh and drinks His blood has eternal life. And of course, you and I think holy communion right away. The, uh, there's a lot of debate about this, however, whether or not John six is really talking about holy communion. Or simply talking about faith. It's a long discussion. Those who say that Jesus is not speaking about Holy Communion will say he's not speaking about it because he hasn't instituted it yet. Others respond well, clearly he's going to, so he's foreshadowing the Lord's Supper. There will be debate about this until the Lord returns in glory, so um, I guess the safe bet is to say in John 6 that if Jesus is not speaking of the Lord's Supper, he is certainly hinting at it, foreshadowing it, as he he says that people will, will eat his flesh and drink his blood for eternal life. Likewise, here in John chapter 3, as Jesus speaks of being born of water and the Spirit, He's most probably speaking of his own baptism, not the baptism that you and I receive. Yet even so, he's he's foreshadowing that new birth that we receive also by water and the Spirit. Jesus goes on to speak more to Nicodemus. Just picking up at verse 5 for continuity's sake, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So, a couple definitions here. Flesh refers, of course, to all humanity. Um, flesh gives birth to flesh. I am a human being born of my parents, also human beings. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, while you listen to this, you note that when Jesus says, that which is born of Spirit is Spirit, the first Spirit is capitalized, and the second Spirit is not capitalized. And that's a good translation. We would also say that The first spirit, the capitalized spirit, is a proper noun. That's the Holy Spirit, where the second spirit is actually an adjective. The Holy Spirit begets spiritual people. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we are given new life. We are given um, eternal life for the sake of Jesus. So, by by our biological birth, we are flesh born of flesh. And by justification, by baptism, we are made spiritual by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this time around, this is not the best translation. A couple of, of words here have more than one meaning in the Greek. Once again, John plays with the language a little bit, to our delight, really. The first word there is wind. The word wind in Greek can mean wind, or breath, or spirit. And the word here translated blows can also mean voices. So, when Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, well, that makes sense because you hear the wind blowing through the trees and you know that it's it's um, it's windy, but you don't know where the wind started or, or where it's going to. It's just blowing through. However, it makes equal sense and better sense in the context if Jesus says, The Spirit voices where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. The Spirit voices. How does the Spirit voice? The Spirit works through the Word of God that Jesus is speaking, that Jesus is voicing. So how do you find the Holy Spirit? You find the Word of God. That's where you know the Spirit is at work. Otherwise, you don't know, you don't know what the Spirit is doing, where it comes from or where it goes The work of the Spirit is a mystery, but when you hear the Word of God, that's where the Holy Spirit is at work. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. They hear the Word of God. By that Word of God, the Holy Spirit works faith, and so they believe in Jesus. In verse 9, we read, Nicodemus said to him, said to Jesus... How can these things take place? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, um, it's hard for us perhaps to think that Jesus might be sarcastic. He certainly is not maliciously so, but he is pointing out an irony here. The uh, task of the teachers of Israel, of whom Nicodemus is one, The task of the teachers of Israel is to teach them God's word, God's truth, so that they might be saved. If one must be born of water and the Spirit, joined to Christ in his death and resurrection to be saved, and Nicodemus doesn't understand this, then he can't teach that to others. So this question by Jesus is sort of a a gentle criticism. You better know what you're up to, buddy. You better know what you're teaching, and it better be the truth. Jesus goes on in verse 11 to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Who is the we? I tell you, we want to jump to the Holy Trinity right away, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But but the we here is probably Jesus and John the Baptist. Both, at the time, are active proclaiming the kingdom of God, that it's at hand because the king is at hand. And both have been opposed by the Pharisees who will not receive the word that they speak. Jesus goes on in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, verse 13 is it's 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 a tricky one, I guess, to to interpret. Clearly, it's about Jesus because Jesus says it's about the Son of Man. He speaks of his ascension and descent to and from heaven. And we don't have a record yet of of him ascending into heaven after descending in the incarnation. It's kind of a long and complicated argument, so hopefully you'll take a little bit here. The ascent is Jesus' victory over sin following his death and resurrection. So it's not just his, his body ascending to heaven, but it's also his victory in total. And the descent from heaven is his total obedience to his Father. So um, descending from heaven means he came from heaven to earth according to his father's will to redeem us. And by obeying his father, he won the victory over sin and death and devil, and that is his triumph, that is, is, that is his ascent into heaven. Here he speaks of it in past tense, but he will accomplish this. No one's done it yet. The son of man will. And then we get to the payoff pitch of this reading. Jesus says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, first, Jesus makes reference to a story of Moses from Numbers 21. If you remember, this is one of the many times when the people of Israel grumble against God and Moses because they're tired of the wilderness wanderings, and they're certain that God has brought them out to die. And in response, God sends fiery serpents into the, uh, into the camp, and they bite people, and people die. And um, convicted of their sin by this display of God's wrath and judgment, the people cry out to Moses for mercy and help, And God instructs Moses to make a serpent out of bronze, to put it on a pole, and to lift it up above the camp so that whoever looks to the serpent doesn't die if they're bitten by the snake. And Jesus says in verse 14 that that is all there to point to him. The people were dying, they looked to the serpent on the cross, and they lived. Jesus will be lifted up as well. And the word lifted up, there is another double meaning word in Greek. It can mean exalted, as in, you know, glorified and worshipped by all. Or else it can mean lifted up, as in crucified. Jesus is saying here um, in in John 3 that as the bronze serpent was lifted up above the people for their deliverance, he will be lifted up on the cross to deliver sinners from sin and death and hell. He will be lifted up, and the one who lifts him up there is God. God. Not man. Jesus is not helpless on the cross. Those, those hostile enemies of his, they, uh, they might hammer in the nails and, and hoist the cross beam, but Jesus is crucified because it is his Father's will. How do we know that God is, in fact, the lifter of the cross? Because Jesus names him... In verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So as the Israelites of Numbers 21 looked to the bronze serpent, trusted that if they looked to the serpent, they would be healed. So now sinners look to Jesus And remember, to see the kingdom of heaven is to believe, so sinners believe in Jesus, and believing in him, they have eternal life. And then Jesus adds, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is such a comforting statement that while Jesus as the Son of God is holy and righteous and hates sin, he didn't come in the flesh to pour out his wrath on us. He came in the flesh to have God's wrath poured out on him. He came not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. So in this John 3 passage, we have that the Father has sent his Son to save us by being lifted up on the cross. The Son is the King of heaven who saves by his suffering. He will enter the kingdom of heaven. He will open it for us as well because he is the one anointed by God He is the one who can do this because he is um, anointed by God with water and the Spirit in his baptism by John. And in our baptism by water and the Word, by water and the Spirit, we are joined to Christ, to his death, and so then also to his resurrection. And so we have eternal life because we are baptized into Christ who was baptized to be our Savior by dying for our sins. Quick look at the Old Testament lesson for this week. It's Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 9. I'll read through it quickly and make a couple really short points. It seems a bit obscure as a connection to John 3, but you'll see a couple themes come through. Genesis 12, starting at verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, And Lot went with him. Abram was seventy five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they sent out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the oak of Moray. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. All right, real quick. Abram is a nobody. He lives in Haran. He's a descendant of worshippers of false gods. And God picks out this, this no name. And he calls him and says, I'm sending you to a new land. Because I'm giving you a new identity as my child, as as, as one of my people. And so Abram trusts this promise of God. And he takes Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and their servants, and he goes to the promised land. And the whole time that Abram lives in the promised land, the Canaanites still live in Canaan too. In fact, of all the people in Canaan, none of them, except Abram and perhaps his family, know that the land now belongs to him because God has given it to him. But even though nobody realizes that yet, Abram has been given the land of Canaan by God, and so God has given him an identity, God will give him a new name, Abraham, And God will give him a new beginning, a new people, and this new land, this new kingdom. As God did that for Abram in Genesis 12, he does that for you and me in baptism. We are lost nobodies apart from his grace. By baptism, he gives us an identity. He puts his name on us and says, you are now my child, for the sake of Christ. And with that new identity, we have a new beginning. We are numbered among a new people, God's people, the church. And we have an inheritance, the promised land of heaven. Now, in the meantime, you're living in a world full of unbelievers like Abram among the Canaanites. Unless they have faith, people don't realize that you're a child of God, and they should probably kind of treat you well for that, as the Canaanites should have treated Abram well for being the guy who now owned the promised land. But for now, you're a child of God by faith. You don't see the inheritance, people don't see you as anything special, but you have God's promise. For Jesus' sake, by water and the word, I have made you my holy child, and the kingdom of heaven is yours. What joy! All right, that concludes our look at the Gospel and Old Testament readings for the second Sunday in Lent. God bless your further meditations. God grant you every good gift if you are teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Goodbye.